Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Nick Johnson. Nick is a global thought leader on the subject of well-being and is passionate on his mission of helping to remove the stigma that surrounds mental health in workplaces worldwide. Nick is the co-founder of EGN, Executives Global Network, which is Asia's number one executive peer network. He's also a best-selling author and was Singapore's top 100 entrepreneur 2021 winner. Nick is the author of Amazon's number one international bestseller book in mental health, titled Executive Loneliness, and has been featured in many national newspapers, magazines, and on television and radio stations. It's so good to talk to you. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Yes, thank you. Likewise, Jen, it's great to be talking with you, especially about these important conversations we have ahead of us today. Yes, resilience. And it seems like something that you know so much about. So I'm really interested to ask you all these questions. And and starting with, before we get into your personal story, I'd really like to know what that resilience means for you. Well, if you asked me this a couple of years ago, you would probably have had a a very different answer. And probably what I would say today would be the wrong answer. But uh, I think when I was younger, I thought, you know, resilience does mean being tough, grinding it through, you know, being able to handle the pain and so on. But the answer I have today is that it's rather the opposite to this. It's about understanding your weaknesses and being vulnerable about them. Uh, talking about them, getting support from others to helping you. So that is very much what resilience is to me today, because that you're a person that really is a team player and someone that is not afraid to ask for help. And I'm guessing there was something in those intervening years that has shifted that. There definitely has been for me. I think we'd have had a very different conversation if we'd both spoken a few years ago when we were toughing it out at the top. But yeah, what's what's your personal story and what, what was the catalyst for that change in your um, view on resilience? Yeah, it was a hunger for success. Many times society set us up for that. And uh, going back all the way to my university days, I got a taste for scholarships, topping classes, awards and so on. And I studied in Australia, which is quite far away from my mother country, Sweden, And I remember flying my parents from Sweden to Australia for one of those nights. And I was very proud of that moment. And they were proud too. But I wanted more of that. And this, though, didn't do me any favors when I came into the workplace. Because then, you know, I was elbowing my way up to the top. Yes, I got the promotions. Yes, I got the salary rises. The bosses were happy and pleased. But my colleagues were not. And that meant once I reached the top, I was a managing director in in, in a couple of companies for big, uh, in in big roles and so on. Then I was really asking myself, you know, uh, is this what I've been fighting my way for? Is this what I want? And I wasn't happy there. And that's the moment when really, really, I was questioning everything in my life. And with that, I resigned from the job. And with that, I turmoiled into a depression. And I didn't know what I who I was. That led to a divorce, and it also led to me losing all my exercise good habits. 
as well as that i lost my diet i traded healthy food for pizza and i ended up on a bar stool so that's basically where i was when i was falling down oh and i think from my experience of those kind of academic success is that it really didn't teach me any lessons in failure or setbacks or obstacles and for me i found it really difficult when those then came later in my life. I don't know if you felt that too. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, even though the school I was at was quite also practical in the terms of, of some of the things we were studying and so on and the papers and so on was, but you're right. And the, there's there's no big failures in there. And it's all set up. You know, when the exam is, there's, it's pretty much uh, run with it as you go. And if you're a good planner and you're strategic, like yourself in, in your athlete days and me with my Ironman training, for example, I already had that benefit then that I could really lay it out and plan. I knew I had three months to do this and I, I, and I was hungry for it. I was more hungry than the most. I just worked harder than everyone else and therefore I achieved uh, uh, the, the awards that came with it. Mm. So then going back when it, it sounded like things had fallen apart with relationships and work and, and being at that rock bottom, how did you start to rebuild life and what did that look like at the time? Well, it was a gradual fall. It didn't happen overnight. It was sort of two, three years where uh, my my health and fitness faded away and my relationships faded away. And then I, I had to build it all back again. And it also took a few years. Um, the the moment that changed everything uh, was actually that I met uh, an, another woman who today is my wife. And uh, I decided after about one and a half year together to tell her how I felt internally. Uh, she had no idea. She thought I was you know, successful in business. Everything was good. She found I was having a great time. And she had no idea that I was suffering internally. When I told her, she was shocked, surprised, and she did what uh, uh, a good human being would do. She dragged me to the doctor and she shared my story with the doctor and suddenly I was all exposed. And from there on, I had pretty much a V-shaped recovery because then I was starting to get the help I needed. And more importantly, yeah, I was exposed and there was no more longer secret and silent that I kept all inside me. Wow. And that is a long time to keep it inside, particularly with somebody that you're seeing day in and day out. So tell me then how that led to your book, Executive Loneliness, which I guess really puts together everything that you've learned in a, a practical way that we can take steps with. How did that come about and your work as a coach? Yeah, so I bounced back rather quickly, but it was still in a pretty much... Uh, a safe space uh, it was talking to the doctors i ended up also in a recovery group where you know i got peers and others who supported each other so i got a sponsor who, who who supported me and so on and it was in this closed safe community i recovered so over a year i started to learn to become more honest with myself more vulnerable i decided to ask for help for issues that i was struggling with that before i tried to keep secret and that was a complete transformation for me and a complete life style change also in in regards to how i was living my life and after a year though i felt absolutely fantastic and Still, though, I had not told people. It was only a handful of people or a very close confidential com community who knew what I had gone through. People could see that I was uh, had lost weight. I was back in training again and and, uh, and so on. That, that was what you could see on the outside. 
but on the inside it was a new nick uh, what then happened changed everything i was actually over in sweden at the time and i was training uh, for my comeback into the ironman sport i had not competed for three years at that stage and uh, then something happened i received an sms and it was uh, a friend of mine who had died of suicide in singapore and this was someone i had worked with someone i knew and this was a big surprise to me and it came as a big shock i called his uh, family who were back in the uk and they also were surprised and uh, that was the moment then when i decided to take my handphone and give it to my five-year-old son and as so i click record and i made a video recording about this and that's when i ex exposed myself for the first time and starting then a charity fund and also to raise the awareness and break the stigma around uh, the suicide from then and also about loneliness and to keep these matters these serious matters secret to as an attempt then to break the, the the stigma that was the next moment that really really changed my life again yeah and you don't shy away from talking about suicide and addressing it in your book um which i think is really really important and so thank you for that and and turning that loss of your friend into something so powerful so tell us a little bit about the book because this really condenses i guess what you've learned and and other experiences into a guide like it talks about executive loneliness in the title but i feel like it's so much wider the use of it for it's not just in workplaces and for me i felt like teachers or people in so many other professions can can really get value from this book so who yeah tell us a little bit about what you wanted to do with this book yeah so the reason the book came about was that after I made that post uh, sharing my story, it went viral on LinkedIn. And before I knew it, I was on live radio, newspaper articles. Everyone wanted to interview me. They said, we want to cover this story, but there's not been no one stepping forward. Everyone wants to be anonymous, but we need a, a person. We need a human being. And there I was. I said yes to everything because I was still in a bit of a shock and I spread out my story and suddenly when it's on the tv and on radio and in newspapers and it was a four pages spread in the business newspaper of singapore which still today is the biggest mental health related feature article in the history of that country and that was about my story my journey with my name my picture so there was nowhere to hide off that that i had gone through a depression i had anxiety that i fell into alcoholism all these things that people will spend a whole lifetime to defend uh, for no one to find out or to be caught in that was right there and, and and of course then with all this exposure coming out you know people were sharing on me i received so many positive notes from people people who had lost loved ones from suicide people who were in depression who saw some hope in this that they kept sharing and and and, and I, I heard hundreds of times said you must write a book about this and that's what i did um, that's how I put together all my thoughts and ideas and, and my story then took it to a publisher in Australia who loved it. And then they helped me also to uh, guide me how I could interview, you know, more executives to get more stories inside the book um, as well uh, and, and the learnings. And the book really is my journey and learnings from other executives how to break out from this. So either in a proactive manner to protect yourself so you don't end up in that dark space or if you're in it, how to get out of it. Mm. And so 
what are the steps get, get trying to get to the practical things in the book because I feel like there's so much value for everybody in those what is it that you identified as those steps to help you and and it says loneliness in the title but there's so many anxiety depression and just mental health issues and disorders that you talk about as well don't you it's quite wide but but what were the practical steps that you you felt were important Yes, absolutely. It's definitely broader than just loneliness. And uh, what happened then was because I came into a recovery program myself, and most of these we all have heard, I'm sure, about the 12-step programs and so on, and you have them for gambling, you have them uh, for everything from alcohol, sex, social media, there's, there's recovery programs for everything, and it's 12 steps. And then I kept being asked, well, it's great for you, Nick, that you had an alcohol problem, so you got support through the steps, <laughs> but I don't have an alcohol problem, but I have this and this problem. Yeah. How, what, what should I do? So that's why it, it, it fueled the idea then. Why don't I take the 12 steps and look at that and, and, and write basically what are the five steps that I believe could help a human being it doesn't have to be an executive rightly as you say it can be anyone a, a family member a friend or a colleague at any level of an organization who's going through a challenging time and that's what i wrote the steps for and i'd be happy to talk you through uh, briefly the five steps uh, if you would like to hear yeah them. that would be great if you can Nick. yeah so the first step then is something that I learned inside a program and that I never never done before. And it's about taking stock. So with taking stock, if we compare it with someone who has a shop or a shop owner, they would do a daily audit or stock count or weekly or quarterly at least. So they know what inventory they have. But how often have we as human beings done this of ourselves? And in this me in, in and what I mean here is in a thorough way that you get a pen and paper out or you get a, a, a spreadsheet and you spend a few weeks to dot everything down, everything, a very honest look. And in, in my case, then everything had to go there, including some of the broken relationships I had. There were things that were unsaid with family members, previous colleagues. All these pain points had to be listed there. But also things, including that I had an alcohol uh, issue, I had an addiction at this stage, my finances were bad, I had to put that down, credit card debt, I had uh, also, I had a terrible diet at this stage, and I had to put all that down. So everything basically, that was an issue had to be honestly put down on, on a, a pen and paper. And this is easiest done with a sponsor, a mentor, a coach in the recovery programs, we are normally given a sponsor to do it. But otherwise, uh, you can do it with a friend or or someone who is an accountability partner would be great. And that, I mean, that sounds so hard. Um, and for me, when I think of having to write that list, one what comes to mind is like shame of, of what I've hidden or what I've done. And and it was that one of the reasons why it took you so long to disclose that you were having these feelings and, and, and what took you so long to take stock when you were in that position a few years before? Yeah, I didn't work with a life coach. I didn't have that support. I, I didn't have a proactive approach to deal with these matters. Um, I did. I was not taught at school, or my parents didn't say I should have a coach. Even I had senior roles, and I got mentors or internal people in the organization who were more senior who guided me on what how to manage the teams and to know the product and services. 
but no one encouraged me to get a confidential, neutral coach on the outside to work with my personal issues. I just didn't hear that. And and and, and if uh, the older generation also, many of them didn't have that. It's sort of only now that we really come to understand that we should be proactive about this. And now my son, for example, who's 14 years of age, when he has major issues at school or something have happened, I hear him out. But if it's really serious, and it has been a few times, then we, uh, uh, my ex-wife and I have consulted a teenage coach who specialized on this to have a few conversations with him so he can speak up and feel that he is heard and there's someone who can understand it and then we can all come together and discuss it again and that's the proactive way i didn't have that as a child mm. okay so we've taken stock which sounds a lot yeah. easier than it really is but we've done that what 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 was the next step that you you suggest in the book yeah so in the next column, it's about starting to write, then who can you ask for help? Um, so if it is an issue of an alcohol addiction on that, we wrote down uh, a friend of mine who'd gone through something similar before we wrote down the support groups, we wrote down psychologists, we wrote down all the ways that you know, I could imagine that I could get help with this. And then for uh, because I was overweight, it was about nutritionists and the people I knew, friends I knew who who, who had a good diet, who I could uh, uh, call and so on. But at this stage, it's just still, you're just writing it down. It's like a brain dump here at this stage. You're not reaching out yet. Uh, so you just write everything down and who you can ask for help for uh, for each of the issues that you have uh, written down. And then after that, it's it's about, I, I found getting healthy is the most important first, physically, mentally, emotionally, getting ready. So for me, that was getting back with wearable devices, having a coach, setting some small goals. And it was just walking for 20 minutes a day in the beginning, but I had not moved at all for a, a year or so, hardly moved at all. So I really needed to get back into it, eating healthy. I had to get an app to log in every single thing I was eating and they were checking everything. And once I started to get back the momentum after two, three months, I was very healthy. And about four months into it, I ran a half marathon. Uh, so that was basically my my process. Then I got a lot of confidence in myself again that I think I got this one. Great. So yeah, getting healthy. And then the fourth one is a very painful one. And if we haven't done this before, it's about repairing all your broken relationships in your life. And I call it the nurturing healthy relationships. So on the sheet where you wrote down pain points with relationships, perhaps you said something to your family member a few years earlier, then you now need to go back to them and, and, and try to make amends and they do, do things right. In my case, I had my sister on the list because she gave a Coca-Cola to my little son when he was five years of age. He had never had a, a, a Coca-Cola in all his life. I got furious. I stormed from the table. We didn't talk for a few years after that. I was just ignoring her. And I thought that was uh, that because I, I overreacted and I didn't know how to deal with it. But I had many of these situations. So I had to go back and make amends and apologize for my behavior at the time. And it's all here about cleaning my side of the street. And we also don't clean our side of the street if it can harm or hurt the other person. I don't, for example, go back to an ex-girlfriend from high school who is remarried and causing some trouble for that relationship. Then in that case, I can write a letter and sign it, and then I burn it, and I have a bit of a prayer or ceremony over it. So 
So that's uh, what I then did. And that's what I now help others to go through this step. And it's very difficult to do it alone. Most people will uh, refuse to go back. Oh, that idiot, that boss, he fired me. You know, it's not my fault. But that's not the point. That means it's pain. It's anger inside you. It's about neutralizing this so we can move forward. So that's what we do in the fourth step. So fix the relationships. And did that, is that something that you've done then? And how did that feel coming through that? Yeah, so that's the, uh, I mean, if you go back and make amends, some might be upset, one in uh, 10 or so might not appreciate it. They say, well, you dig up old stuff and things. But actually, about, I find that about nine people of 10, nine of 10, but very surprised, positively surprised. So what I did in this process, and I recommend everyone, is dig out your old high school photos and university photos and look at every single person and think, did you say something to this person that still is there that you remember or have a feeling about? Then write that person down. And I went back to so many, and I still do today because I've done hundreds, but I can still think of incidents. And if I meet them, I take the chance to to make that amen. But um it could be that, you know, you said something to someone very many years ago, but if you have a feeling about it, that means that it's still some pain there for you. And when I went back to my high school friends, we have now caught up again and we met for lunch, we met for coffee, and the, those relationships are flourishing now again. And these were people who I had not spoken to for 30 years. Oh, so you never know what might become of it, that contact. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. And your parents uh, and uh, relatives, everyone would be uh, really surprised and they will love you for this, yeah, for sure. And then what was the final step that you identified? Yeah, so the final step then, now you, you're, you're back in health, you're healthy and you sorted out your relationship. You will basically walk very freely. You will walk very freely because you can go to bed easily at night. You sleep well because you have no regrets about the past no anxiety for the future. So then you should be ready to start identifying really your purpose. And in uh, many times we have perhaps ended up in a career for the wrong reason, like myself, driving uh, just really hard to get to the top here at this stage. You should be in a space to start considering what is it that you want to do and really work again, asking for help and working with perhaps with life coach, career coach, people to really, really question you and find out what is your purpose? What is the legacy? And have someone who can have the conversation to take you uh, to the day on your deathbed and really asking you what are, what what regrets do you have in your life and having those deep conversations. So that is really uh, what I recommend to do at that state step. And that's what I did as well. And I'm guessing it's not just like then we tick that tick all those off and that's it. Eternal happiness. Is this something that you're revisiting and and conscious about as you go through life now? Absolutely. And I just want to say, go back to the relationship part. It's something that uh, um, we are trained to do on a daily basis. Before you go to bed, do daily inventory and think over the day. Did I send an email that was not quite right? Did I hang up the phone on someone? Did I snap at the cashier at my local 7-Eleven? And if you did any of that, you have a chance to make those amends before you go to bed. And even better, I'm trying to make those amends and catch myself in the middle of the sentence or as it's happening to stop myself and if i do say something to a friend that wasn't nice or to my wife i will try within the next five seconds to take it back right away so it's getting that habit so in that sense it's really ongoing and and your purpose of course it's an ongoing journey uh, but the life i'm living today 
And as I say, it is a life beyond my wildest dreams because that was a life that I didn't see before. I didn't know it existed. Some, I mean, well, a lot of that is so hard, isn't it? And comes back to when we were talking about resilience and showing those vulnerabilities. And I know that's something that you talk about in your book a lot. I'm quite quite surprised, like how recent this seems to be for leadership in terms of now we're where we are allowed to show our weaknesses. But what what does that mean for you? And what can showing weaknesses look like? We don't have to tell everybody about relationship problems as soon as we meet them, for example, do we, or anything like that? Yeah, I think we have to be careful uh, what we are vulnerable about and with whom we are vulnerable with. Uh, there's only so much we can share in the workplace, for example, because maybe people will gossip. We have to be very selective and picking a few people who we trust and open up about sensitive points to them. And uh, many times it might mean that we should do, uh, you know, share it in a confidential setting with a, a psychologist, the therapist, the coach, a doctor, or there's like what I do for a living now is arranging confidential peer groups, which another word for basically masterminds, where you have like-minded, you have men's group, you have women groups, you have so many of these. Uh, and I belong to several also outside of my organization, men's group, for example, where you can share uh, and practice your vulnerability. I belong, for example, to one men's daily gratitude list and every one of us the men in there we share the first thing in the morning the 10 things we are grateful for and um, the latest i saw was one man who just joined us he said thanks for uh, adding me to this group i'm very grateful for this the next thing was that he had cried for the first time in a long time you know and just to admit that to some other person that train and practice uh, the vulnerability muscle as i call it so this is something that we can just keep flexing like a muscle and and build it as a as a regular practice. Mm. Absolutely, it's all about that practice. And tell me a little bit about the networks you just touched on there. So I can imagine from a support group, whether that, like you say, these alcohol or other gambling recovery groups, you do have that support network. But is is this something that you've set up for anybody who just needs that support? And tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, so those support networks exist. And I'm now basically a, a volunteer, you can say, for, for the ones. I'm thankful for the gift I got for the people who helped me when I had a problem. And even tomorrow morning at 9.30, I will be at one of these recovery meetings to be there for the newcomers and support them. So that's one part. But for... My business these days is to arrange these confidential peer groups. And uh, we now have 29 peer groups here in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, where I'm working and, and running these. And it's not about addiction. It's not specifically about burnout or anything of what we discussed today. It's just this safe place for like-minded. We are groups for entrepreneurs, marketing leaders, HR leaders, executive leaders, and various groups for various executives where they can then share the work-related challenges and many times it could be uh, how to manage upwards or issues they're f- facing conflicts they have in the teams and how to solve them because if you address it at that level then it is what we discussed before it is about being proactive about it rather than isolating uh, about it and finding some bad habits or that turns into addictions because uh, you, there is an issue at the work or in our lives 
I was really interested in the book when you spoke about social media and as particularly that the higher level of social media use could correlate with a higher level of loneliness sounded really surprising to me. And I know that you identified that there may be age differences there. I also wasn't aware that when Facebook first started, I think you said that you could only have 100 friends because nobody would have more than that or something. But Should we be looking at the quality of our social interactions rather than just quantity and high numbers? And yes, I've got lots of friends because there they all are on Facebook. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, commercially, it's really good to have high numbers. That's what the world are looking for. So I'm a victim of this myself. (laughs) I have a lot of followers on LinkedIn and Facebook, for example. Uh, But I do believe in quality over quantity. uh, And uh, that is why in the network we have, the the peer network, for example, that I run now, uh, we don't just build a big pond with 900 members. We divide them in smaller groups. That's why we have 29 groups. We believe that it should go to the size of a class from school something like that so you get to know everyone's name you can be there and support each other being of service remembering each other and therefore yeah it's about smaller units that's the the quality over quantity definitely when it comes to relationships yes because then even when I thought when I thought about then my number of close friends I mean it's it's quite small really compared to well definitely compared to how how many it may look like externally And tell me a little bit, you touched on getting healthy and I'm really interested in your sport and fitness and and how that's linked to your resilience and how that's helped you. Yeah, I learned in the recovery programs uh, very much about self-leadership, that it's about putting ourselves first because if we don't do that, we might uh, fall back into a relapse to whatever problems we had. We might go down in that dark hole again. So we really need to put ourselves first because only when we do that, we can show up for others. So in that sense, exercise come very close to my heart and, and, and I know that I need to train, I need to eat, I need to sleep well in order to feel good. Now I have a very understanding why for this. And I've actually put uh, the, my, all these things with the healthy parts first in my life. And I block my calendar on recurrence for the rest of my life. It's blocked three hours a day for my own time. And that may be, for now it's exercise, but if I'm injured, then it might be a walk, a yoga. But I, I give myself three hours a day. And as an entrepreneur now, I say when I sit in front of my computer, when I'm working, when I'm in meetings, when I'm on email, then I'm like an administrator. I'm like a manager working in the business. When I'm in the swimming pool or out cycling or running, then I have more of a a bigger vision. That's my CEO mindset. That's the strategy. The good ideas come from there. And that's why I've been having so much success in my business the last few years because of that. But not many people would do this. They would stigmatize this. They would hide it or they wouldn't want feel comfortable. I have blocked this in uh, so all my colleagues can see it in my calendar. And I'm not shy about that. And if they want to exercise or do something for themselves three hours a day, I don't do it in the middle of the day block. I, I'm still working, but I do that in the morning and in the evening. Most days I have two two sessions, so about three hours a day of workouts. We talked a bit, a little bit before about that you had had setbacks with your fitness as well. And I just wondered how you'd coped with injury because that's obviously something pressing on mine. But but what could you draw on from your other experiences that have helped you with those 
setbacks? For a start, there's so much sport that I love that I just I don't know where to start. I mean, in my whole life, I'm just crazy about exercise and sport. Uh, at university, I played golf at the high level. I have sold my golf clubs now because either I play it focused and really well or not at all. I'm not the in-between person. And that's why now Ironman works for me. But until I had... Uh, 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 an injury early and until this happened i was mainly running but as we age running can be quite hard on the body and the more i read and heard and listened they say you should do some other sports as well and then i picked up triathlon and that means i added some swimming and and cycling and what i found then because i don't run so much so many kilometers and so many hours actually it it works really well it's almost like uh, one sport helps you for the other and, and therefore now I'm, I'm, I can still train at a very high level and compete at a decent level for my age group. In fact, I just received a result for 2023 today. And uh, I'm pleased to say that I'm ranked in the top 2% in the world in my age group in the sport <laughs> I'm competing. Well done. Well done. But then I also wonder, like I started running to just really help with my mental health and physical health after I'd been working far too many hours and suffered from family bereavements and just needed that time outside. But at some point it switched and I became in that high achieving mindset where suddenly things, I was worried, stressing about my placings and pace and things like that. And, and I just wondered if it, if it's always fun for you or do you let yourself have that achieving mindset does resilience show up as that tough and grinding things out in sport and that's okay or do you bring this your new approach into resilience in in your sport as well and give yourself that compassion there yeah i have completely changed the way i train and where i train and how i live and i also worked with coaches and and i, I had a lot of conversations with mentors about finances and personal finance because i had worries and anxiety about that in the past so i did all changes in this regard i terminated my expensive rental apartment i bought a very very small apartment which i could afford so i'm the owner of it and uh, really so i have low expenses i live a very basic life i moved out from singapore where the rent is very expensive and i bought an apartment in phuket thailand and there is one of the best uh, triathlon training camps in the world and uh, I live right in the middle of it, basically. I uh, basically have a very basic apartment, but outside 200 meters from here is the starting points for all the trainings. So I joined groups and athletes and some of the pros and some of the, even the world champions are coming here to train. So that's on my doorstep now. That's what I call my back office. <laughs> and you still find it fun and you still have these, you know, find it inspiring to do. You, you don't feel like, for me, I think that I'm perhaps took it too far and I can see other runners because that's what I see or just really over-exercising and uh, and going too far both mentally and physically I think because I think I forgot that it was still a stress on my body with everything else going on but it sounds like you feel like you've got the balance well I think if we look at swimming it's such a light sport uh, for the body and uh, the that a lot of volume is swimming uh, I have five swim sessions a week uh, and cycling is also reasonably easy we only do uh, some push for a few 
a few minutes a week on the cycle and most is there for easy uh run uh, uh, is hard on the body but uh, i only run four or five times i should say only but uh, <laughs> <laughs> i tell you <laughs> that now daily <laughs> but and it's also uh, a few of the runs are easy and and so on it's more to get the volume there so because you balance it out it's not that tough on the body and i and uh, i at least find that it works well for me but i'm a bit at the extreme end Jen. <laughs> <laughs> works well for you we're not saying that's that's a normal amount to do. <laughs> and do you have any other hobbies? I I wondered if you find things that you do where there's no achievement, it's just pure fun, maybe you're not that good at it, maybe starting new things. Do you feel like that's an important important practice for us as humans? Yeah, there's so many things I really love to do, but I don't have the time to do it now because of my training. So I, when I'm injured, I almost see it as a as a blessing in some uh, form because then I can do some of the things I love, and that is definitely including uh, yoga and Pilates, and I also love hiking. Uh, those kind of things I, I really, really love, but it's just no way I have time now with my training <laughs> schedule. So if ever it is off season or things like that, then I do enjoy those activities. And and uh, yeah, I, I really, really rarely force myself to do the training, at least so far, even though swimming can be quite boring sometimes. But I love the feeling after and, and it's almost like a meditation in that sense. Uh, I'm sure you're training in some beautiful places as well. And <laughs> think of us in yes, the Yes, actually. Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> that might help. <laughs> and then just going back to your work, it sounds like when you first started speaking out about mental health in the workplace, particularly for those executives and the people at the top level, that they really seemed to be it seemed to be quite novel, but very welcome that you were talking about this and starting these conversations. And I just wondered how that still goes. Do you still see that there is a lot of stigma about speaking about these issues? And and how do you feel like that's improving into the future? Yeah, so the purpose of my first book was really to just start a conversation and uh, aim at breaking the stigma of discussing this and i believe that it has achieved that in, in in the community where i've been and the fact that it's been so much covered in the media and i've been on 100 over 100 podcasts around the world now talking about this so yes it's working uh, but there's still much more work to do i'm actually writing my second book now, which most likely will be labeled Executive Vulnerability, because when I, uh, when we're talking about 2019, when this book came out, vulnerability was still not so popular. Then we had the pandemic with all the mental health and everything else. And suddenly people start to ask, are you okay? And that's a very shallow way to, to try to address it. But at least someone ticked the boxes. But now it's about going deeper. And that is what I aim to do with the next book, really to give tips to leaders. And it doesn't have to be business. It can be family members or friends, how to have these conversations and how to make sure that the culture of your family or your business is an open one where people dare to be vulnerable. Mm. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was about starting those conversations because or whether we need to, for example, looking at your own story that you shared, you know, you were a year and a half and even your wife wasn't didn't know what was happening inside your own head. And I just wondered, is this something that we can look out for in people, friends, is there a way that we can start conversations? 
Yes, absolutely. And the best is with uh, our children, to take this as an example. If we are not vulnerable as and open as parents, the children will be very closed and quiet. And so uh, having a teenage boy myself, um, I always, when I speak with him, I explain how I feel. I talk about my feelings and so on. And then uh, we have a conversation. And then after a while, I'm, I'm asking him, so how are you feeling? So, you know, just talking about feelings and, and being the leader to do that, then we invite the others without them realizing it. If you take someone on the spot and you're asking them about feelings or expect them to be lonely, they will shut down completely. But we have to take the initiative as the leader. So as I said, the parents or the senior in the business, they need to be vulnerable. And I can give you an example of this because in my book, I'm talking about the day when I hit my rock bottom and it's not a pretty page. It's a, and I, and, and it's really when I was in the dark space um, and I was really, uh, you know, uh, t- having a big issue with alcoholism at that time. And uh, there was a lot of stigma for me to release that in a book, knowing that that's going to the whole world is on Amazon. But that is a page uh, of the book that I refer people to when they want to have a job interview and working with me, I send them a PDF copy of my book and I tell them to go to that page. Uh, some people are canceling the job interview before uh, because they might be shocked, but the most people go ahead. And there was one particular gentleman who had read it. And within five minutes uh, of the job interview, he showed me a few scars and he had uh, attempted suicide. Uh, you can imagine how uh, open this conversation, how open this job interview would be when you are talking about these topics five minutes into a job interview. He got hired and he's still working with me today and he's one of the best performers of our organization. Uh, There's nothing off the table. There's nothing he wouldn't explain to me or talk to me about any issues in his private life or the company. Uh, uh, And that is the kind of culture that is the kind of company that I want to run these days. It's such a powerful story, but it's saying that by sharing our own vulnerabilities, we're laying those foundations for everybody else to be vulnerable too, like lead by example. Absolutely. And I know that we want to push this one on because it's not comfortable. It's not easy, but I'm sorry to all leaders. You cannot ask your HR to do this. For example, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> It is hard. So, but thank you for tackling these really hard issues and making us have much more fulfilling, deeper connections and hopefully deeper lives as well. It seems such important work. Yeah, thank you. Indeed, it is important work. And thank you so much, uh, Jen, and thanks the listeners as well for covering this important topic. And uh, I think if there's one message I also want to send is that the, if there's anyone who feel overwhelmed with all the steps there is too much one thing to do at least can be if you have anything on your mind anything that someone uh, has an issue with or if there's some pain or if you're going to bed at night and you're waking up because you worry about this i would advise at least to write that one thing down and then think about who can you talk to about this and there's so many volunteers and supporters out there. You can just go to search engine. You will find people for every problem who are there to help. And uh, so just reach out and talk to someone. That would be my advice oh. and recommendation. I've seen it working for so many. It's such good advice. And I know that you volunteer and, and, and work with some of those charities and organizations too, don't you? Which must be really rewarding for both the people that get to speak to you and for yourself. Yes, absolutely. It's about being 
a, a human being and being their father. So I got help. I got well. So now I have to pay the the gift forward. And and how do you look back at those those difficult times in your life? Do you see them as a gift because of what's come next? For yes, you? absolutely. It's it's uh, it's the greatest gift of my life, and uh, they call it the gift of desperation. And it seems only when we we have to get so unwell that we're willing to do something which we would never have considered in our lives. And I'm now touch wood some six years without alcohol soon. And that is in itself just a complete miracle. Um, and to be able to live that life and being fit, healthy, uh, not worrying about that, not worrying about the other things that comes with that, that's just a, a complete miracle that I'm so grateful for. Oh, thank you. And I hope one day I'll look back at my injuries and what I've been through as a gift too. It's really inspiring to hear you talk and I just feel so grateful for your time, Nick. How how can people follow you and see what you're up to and get news about that new book that you're writing? Yeah, thank you. Uh, they can go to Amazon. My book is there and it was a bestseller in UK and the men's health, mental health and so on. So look up Executive Loneliness on Amazon. Otherwise, I'm quite active on LinkedIn and it's uh, Nick Johnson there. Oh, thank you. And and I, I really appreciate your book. And as I say, I think it's so helpful for anybody and any relationship. It isn't just for executives and, and those people that are struggling in the workplace. I think there's just value in, in us all sharing this and sharing what we've been through and what's worked for us. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you so much. And good luck with your triathlons. <laughs> you might okay, be inspiring me. To get my triathlon suit back out at some point. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review, or sharing us with others. Thank you so much, and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.